The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey guys, this is Lo. Welcome to a fantastic episode of I Love Wellness, where the topic is mental health, one of my favorite topics to discuss. Today we have the founder and CEO of Real On. It is Ariella Safira. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to chat. Me too. So you launched this company called Real, and I, I just would love for you to give. To tell me what Real is. Yeah, of course. Real is a mental health care company really building a brand new therapy model and one that is brand forward, one that's affordable, one that's clinically effective, one that really speaks the language of people today in ways that like our clinical system often doesn't. Okay. So what does that mean exactly? Is it an app? When I sign up, do I get connected to a therapist? Like what happens when I sign up for real? Yeah. So what you're signing up for when you sign up is a monthly membership and membership looks like $34 a month. And what you get access to is a monthly mental check-in. So we're tracking and assessing your mental health over time and then access to a menu of new kinds of therapy experiences. And they're called things like pathways, round tables, real talks, events. And they're really this library of different tools ranging from live group sessions with a therapist to on-demand a sort of Spotify playlist of your mental health questions answered by therapists, really allowing you to figure out where and when and how you want to access your mental health care, right? So often, if if you've ever gone to therapy, you might know, you might get access to, or you might get booked for a, a Monday 2 p.m. appointment. What I'd like to say is, what I like to say is, this Monday at 2 p.m., I was stressing out about my pitch deck, right? Like I couldn't get reach any depth about childhood traumas or what's really happening under the surface. I'm, I'm not really getting much further than work is annoying. Whereas catch me at Friday at midnight and I have things to talk about, mm-hmm. right? And what what's often like missing in the mental health care system that we provide is this opportunity for you to, to decide what places instill psychological safety, right? For one person, it might be their bed. For another person, it might be a walk outside. And what times are best for you? For me, it's midnight on a Friday. For another person, it's like a walk at five o'clock in the morning, right? And then on top of that, having the ability to re-tap into sessions and lessons. So often, if you've ever gone to therapy, you might've experienced you know, a breakthrough in a session six months ago that no longer really sits with you today, mm. right? We need this, like what I like to explain is this is really a muscle in our brain that needs to be re-practiced. You can have learned like an amazing insight six years ago and really trust it still sticks with you. Sure. And instead you need access to a sort of library to re-engage you with those learnings and for you to re-tap into when it's needed, right? Maybe it's around like anger and managing your anger before you go see your parents for the holidays. Maybe it's around nervousness before first dates. So really giving you that flexibility to engage with and like empowering you to take control of your mental health. I really like that. I think that that's such an interesting point of differentiation between what you are building versus other services is like the ability to go back in time. Because yeah, I mean, like I have um, been through therapy and it was so fantastic. And at this point in time, I'm like, oh, well, like, I think that this was the takeaway. I think that this was the lesson because there's been so much time and, you know, I didn't take notes or write it down or whatever. So sometimes in my mind, I'm like, am I, you know, moving forward uh, directionally appropriate, right? But like with the exact, you know, 
information on the breakthrough that I had or whatever. So I love the idea of being able to sort of like go back um, to almost like a catalog of, you know, your experiences to kind of help continue drive that um, like feeling forward. And yeah, it's, it's all about muscle memory, right? So I right. that's fascinating. And the idea that like, listen, what works for me may not work for you and vice versa. So right. the opportunity to be able to open up um, sort of like on your time, in your space, whatever makes you feel optimized in that way is really interesting because yeah, I mean, like there's times when I've done therapy over Zoom and it's been great. And there's other times I've dreaded going into somebody's office. And so I think yep. being able to like make that your own is is really, really cool. Um, so I know that you studied clinical psychology at Columbia, you big genius, um, but you dropped out. You felt like the training was outdated and inconsistent, but I'm just curious, can you sort of like Take me back further to your interest in mental health and the mental health care system and sort of like where that um, seed was like first um, planted for you. Yeah, uh, I do think it's important to say, I think I grew up with an incredibly uh, mentally well father. My dad was raised in a commune, very hippy dippy when it comes to like loving the world, loving your people. Though the, the trigger for the full experience really came during my first year at Stanford in undergrad when a friend attempted suicide. And that was my big eye-opener as to what mental health care looks like. That was the first time I'd ever seen a rehab. First time I really heard about or understood what meds and therapy looks like, like with a more mature mindset and just thought the system didn't make sense. Um, so I threw myself at it. I got in touch with David Kelly, who's the founder of IDEO, also the founder of Stanford's Design School. And we hit it off and ended up spending three years working together on how can we redesign mental health care. Um, and what that entailed was applying to grants and flying to rehabs, inpatient mental health facilities, architecture firms that built those spaces, really to interview folks to learn why do we make the decisions in mental health that we do? At the time, there wasn't an agenda to build a company. It was a curiosity, like where do, where do these ideas even come from? I actually left Stanford. I thought I would drop out entirely to found real um, to work on this. And David convinced me to return after a year away. Mm -hmm. um, so I came back, finished up, then I was studying math. So very different from clinical psych. Um, and then from there, worked at a few places to work on redesigning care, worked at IDEO New York, worked at um, a Google company called Sidewalk Labs. I worked in uh, their care lab company called CityBlock, went to, to work at what's considered the most innovative mental ward in the world in England, and uh, biked across a bunch of countries to fundraise for suicide prevention. So really threw myself at the system from very different organizations ways. And the last thing I did was well, the last question I had is how are we training therapists? Felt like that was the real gap I was missing. So I left to join Columbia's clinical psych program. And while there, as you had mentioned, I quickly saw how outdated the training is and this time successfully dropped out. <laughs> um, ultimately, felt like, ultimately felt like no startups were really, or even no healthcare systems were changing what is the mental health care product we were kind of sitting still and stagnant in this idea of therapy that was built over a hundred years ago. And rather than saying like, maybe therapy isn't it. Like, what does it mean to build a new kind of mental health care experience and to track how does that improve someone's state of mind? I guess my question though for you is like, when did you have that light bulb moment as a student and like not a clinical practitioner that like this model is outdated? Like, because that really requires you to get outside of yourself and to have experience within the system, right? 
and yeah. feel it, like it's not working for you. So like, what was that like light bulb yeah. moment? Like, oh, this is outdated and this needs to change. I mean, the second I walked into my friend's rehab when I was a freshman in college, I immediately said, I feel depressed and I'm not the one who just attempted to take her life. Uh, it seemed, I felt that with mental health care more than other areas of health care, I felt very confident in understanding the experience. Like I know feelings, I know how I feel if I'm a healthy human and walk into this place and feel miserable. Yeah. How, and of course it just started at, at that kind of simple Mm -hmm. take but like that was sort of enough to be like this place is all I feel guilty leaving her here mm -hmm. and how these places these facilities are very expensive right they're not it was it was surprising to see that the design the programming and like if I would get worse here mm -hmm. right and it felt very obvious to me that I would if I'm completely well and I couldn't possibly find joy here I know she's not she's very afraid to be here how are we letting this remain and I think having folks like David Kelly just like a well-known designer validate like yeah a lot of things don't make sense yeah and they wait for someone to change them was enough for me to say like sick I'll do that yeah that's really really interesting so I guess you know with real you mentioned before we started that you like have some new products and platforms launching soon what do you hope that clients gain more of from your platform than traditional therapy one of the biggest takeaways that might make us different is the real goal is we are empowering you to form a relationship with yourself, right? And I think whether or not it's intentional, often therapy, be it online via text or in person, often it causes codependency. Even if it didn't mean to, it causes this you know, the client is waiting for the therapist to answer their questions. So they're dependent on the therapist to like give them time to reflect. And what my goal is, and certainly Real's goal is, how can we empower you to do this on your own? How can we make you feel like you have a relationship with yourself, which certainly requires time and space and tools to do so, right? I'm empowered to work out and I could still use workout equipment, right? It's not a, like you can do this isolated of all things, but what I want to do is to change the power dynamic such that it's not, I'm waiting for my therapist to help me, but rather like this is, this power is within me. I'm improving myself with the tools that this organization that real is offering. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. When I, I'm just thinking about my own experience with therapy, when you talk about that and like, because therapy really right is about creating a better relationship with yourself. It's not about creating a relationship with a therapist, right? right? And I think that when people go into it, that is the perspective that a lot of people take potentially. Like, you know, you're there for yourself and like you have some issue to work on. But I think this, this idea of like, who's my therapist? Oh my God, am I going to like them? Blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is important, but we place such high value on that instead of, okay, what am I doing for myself here today? And so I think trying to sort of like shift that narrative is really interesting. It's something that I haven't really thought about, you know, because like you go to therapy and if you like your therapist, you consider them to be like a fucking godsend. You know what I mean? You're like, what my therapist says is the be all end all. And I think the ability to not necessarily question that, right, but um, to develop confidence in your own self and your relationship with yourself is really powerful. So I think that approach is definitely unique. It like makes me think differently about 
you know, the experience with therapy that I have had thus far. Yeah. I mean, and I think the problem is pretty common throughout all of healthcare that we often look for clinicians. Like I need to go to this doctor's office to find this out. And it's, it's a really rattling mindset to live in, to live in this place of I'm relying on other people to tell me how my body feels. There's certainly, you know, an education that a doctor, or a clinical psychologist comes with the language they were taught, yeah. but we shouldn't confuse the fact that they have names for things with them knowing or not knowing how I feel. Like, I'm still the owner of how I feel. And so often I think we're behind in healthcare, mental health care and all others because we're like waiting on these doctors to figure it out as opposed to like, it is valid enough for me to say how I'm feeling. And even if my depression manifests different than yours, I'm telling you this is depression, yeah. right? And I think, especially when it comes to mental health, stripping that power from a person is hugely debilitating. Yeah, you're right. Wow. Yeah, I hope everyone listening is like really listening right now because I feel like what you were just talking about is like very empowering um, to the individual um, and for people to like be their own health advocates. Um, so that's really fantastic. Um, I want to sort of switch the focus here. Uh, do you have like, do you have a lot of male users? Like, wh- why do you think the general consensus of men is to think of therapy as a negative? Yeah. Why is it? Because we tell boys at a young age not to cry. You know, it's a goal of mine to have a platform that is used heavily by males because we have so stripped men of the opportunity, and not just men, but I do think the culture we have built for young boys in America is one that involves zero vulnerability, zero authenticity, right? You know, this idea of like expressing how you feel is stripped from boys at a young age. And as a result, when they're 25 and introduced to therapy, their response is like, they just went through 20 years of being told they cannot emote. Of course, it doesn't work out for them. Right. Right. And I think it's a problematic to say, well, go to therapy again and try. It's like the system should work for you. You shouldn't have to work for the system. Mm-hmm. Right. And understanding, like, I think we've done some surveying and user research to learn that our platform resonates more significantly with men than women. It seems because of the anonymity that it allows for, the customization that it allows for is one that is more unique for a man talking about their feelings than it is needed for a woman talking about their feelings. Of course, this is totally generalizing. Um, Certainly know many females have a hard time emoting and many men who have an easy time doing so. But I do find that the ability to join real and access this content and to work on these things at your own pace, on your own time, anonymously, really resonates with the male demo. Yeah, that's interesting. So how do you feel like, well, and I feel like the pandemic has like allowed us to take huge steps forward in terms of having conversations about mental health, because everyone is just like, so uh, just everyone's struggling right now, right? (laughs) But how do we start having conversations about mental health and make that just as common as we do our physical health? I think one of the things it starts with is communicating the mental health journey exists when you're dealing well too. Part of the issue is that when it comes to mental health, we only talk about it when we're talking about depression, when we're talking about anxiety. That would be similar to a world where we only talk about fitness when we're talking about obesity 
right? When we're talking about illness, but that's not the case. People talk about fitness and work on their fitness when they're as fit as it gets, right? When they're, we have competitions flaunting bodybuilders. Why don't we have competitions flaunting how emotionally well people are, what emotional intelligence is, right? And so really fighting the stigma, as people call it, involves changing when we engage with mental health care. Because really, it's less so an active stigma right now as it is just like explaining what mental health care looks like. Mm -hmm. Like All mental health care today is talking about depression and anxiety. So certainly it's depressing and anxiety inducing, right? Whereas if you also look at it as a place to understand your happiness, your pride, understand what lifts you up and why it lifts you up, then you get to understanding like this is something to feel proud of because it means understanding my full self, right? And I think we need to get to a place where and that means changing the products delivered and the services delivered such that you have something to do in the mental health care system when you're feeling quote unquote well. Wouldn't it be interesting if like, you know how we had PE growing up at school? Wouldn't it be interesting yeah. if like we had, you know, 15 minute meditation sessions every day? I know that some schools actually do do that. I've seen documentaries on it when I was learning about transcendental meditation, but oh my gosh, wouldn't it be cool if like we implemented education on this, like from a young age in the same way that we do right. P. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. Give meditation and also teaching language, right? Most people don't know, just don't have language to talk about their body image. If you ask them to go to a room and talk about their body image for 45 minutes, they'd have little to say beyond like, I feel fine or not fine mm-hmm. because we, we haven't been taught or seen examples or had role models show us what does it mean to explain your relationship with your thighs versus your relationship with your chest, yeah. right? What does it mean to feel like insecurity in some places and not in others. This is like, we are, I do think building real has really allowed me to understand like how much starts with language and how not having language to communicate things is the most debilitating opportunity like stripped away from us. This idea that I literally don't know how to say these things. So I'll never understand myself. Mm -hmm. And if in the first grade, just like you took English class to learn about fiction books, you took like a language class to learn about the brain and mental health. I think, wow, that would go such a far way. hundred percent. Maybe you should call Dr. Biden, head to the hill and introduce a bill. <laughs> I, after real. <laughs> after, okay, sounds good. Um, all right. Well, I have two questions left for you. Questions I ask every guest. The first is what is your secret ritual? This is something you do that makes you feel happy or helps you unwind, but you do it in secret. Fun. Fun. <laughs> I... Wasn't expected to share this. Okay, fun. One of the things I love doing, I don't know if I would recommend everyone does this. This is certainly not clinical advice, not advice by any means. Works for me, might be traumatizing for others, but at least once a month, if not more, I, bear with me here, essentially imagine someone I love deeply dying and truly go through the full experience of like meditating with that and envisioning like, what is their death? What is their funeral? How am I feeling? I'm often crying in these sessions. And then I get to tap into, do that for probably 10 or 20 minutes, really imagining it, like go through some scary visuals. And at the end of my journey, get to live with the realization that they're alive. And I think often my loved ones received a lot of calls from me saying, I'm so grateful you're alive. I would be so distraught if you weren't. And really that, that, exercise I don't even know when it started I've always been fascinated by death but it it is such a reminder like a practice that reminds me 
the value of my people mm-hmm. and like what is actually purpose in life and how none of these little things that happen every day really matter. Like what would actually pain me and traumatize me when I get to live with for 20 minutes is my brother passing away. And it really energizes me and gets me going. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. Again, don't necessarily recommend that for the whole world. Yeah, I don't no, know I, how that I just like an emotional exercise for sure. Um, <laughs> my last question for you is what is one thing that you do now that you wish you had learned earlier? I wish I set what I do now and what I wish I'd done earlier was set better boundaries as to how much I give to others. I think especially being the daughter of my dad, like just embodied generosity and like give all your energy to others. Something like I've definitely witnessed like burnout more than ever before and not just from work, but from getting back to the person, having the dinner, doing the thing. And I have, especially these past few months, been a lot better at naming. I'm emotionally exhausted. I think a better way of putting it might be like naming my emotional exhaustion and letting that alone be a reason to not attend the dinner, not make it to the interview, which is not something I practiced or even named in the past. I think that's really helpful. Mm, I like that. I'm going to name my emotional exhaustion. (laughs) I need it. (laughs) That's that's really helpful. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you so much to my guest, Ariella Safira. She's the CEO and founder of Real. And this is I Love Wellness. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast. It means so much to me and everyone on the Love Wellness team. Thanks, Ariella. Thank you.